Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Sister Moira de Bono on the topic, The New Roman Missal Translation. This May 2010 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Sister Moira is a member of the Religious Sisters of Mercy of Alma, Michigan, and currently lectures full-time at the University of Notre Dame, Australia in Sydney. Thank you, Robert. Well, I'm grateful to be here tonight. Uh, and I also had a little prayer prepared, which I, I, would like to, I would like to use because it really is an opening for our present, the presentation that I'd like to give you. So on your handout, you'll see it there. It's the collect from today's Mass, the opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, grant that we may be shaped by the Easter mysteries as we joyfully celebrate them in all their power. May they always be our safety and salvation. Through Christ our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. May we be shaped by the Easter mysteries. Uh, this is very much the meaning of the phrase lex orandi, lex credendi, that I've given as the topic for tonight in looking at the general instruction of the Roman Missal and a little bit at the Missal itself. Now, that, this um, Latin phrase means that the law, what we pray, lex, is the law of our prayer is the law of our belief, is what the phrase means. And with the sense that when we pray, the words we're saying are our beliefs, and our beliefs we find in our prayers. And when we're speaking of the prayer of the Mass, we know it's not simply words, but also actions, gestures, postures, etc. And so this is one of the elements of the general instruction and of Mass that we'll talk a little bit about, I'll introduce tonight to you. And that we recognize that as we are body, spirit beings, you know, that we cannot, you know, we can't, you know, like some new age, which is sort of some new agey philosophies, which actually seem to be reincarnations of former heresies, would separate the body from our soul. Whereas we recognize that who we are is very much tied up in our physical nature as well as, as, well as our soul, our being. And so with that, we'll be looking at, at the Mass, the highest, the most awesome reality that we participate in, on a weekly basis at least, or even more frequently than that, as it is the Paschal Mystery, Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension made present to us, not just as a memory or just saying, well, this, you know, this is a belief we have, but it's actually the reality becomes present to us, and not just as a person in an audience, but that we participate. The Catechism talks about when we are at Mass, it is as if we're at the foot of the cross with Mary takes you back and you think about that every time we're at Mass. What does that reality mean? And so in the development of the church, and the, as the church has reflected on that reality through the ages, 
we have the, the ritual, the rite, the celebration of the Eucharist to evermore reflect that reality. Okay? So I want to explore these two new documents that the church has given us. And I can do it in a couple of ways. And I've just decided as I was talking with Robert which way I'm going to go. <laughs> I'm going to start talking to you, presenting, okay? And I don't want to be simply lecturing, because I get hoarse pretty fast. <laughs> um, but if you've got some questions or comments, you know, you can raise your hand and we can have a give and take before the question and answer session at the end. If something I'm saying is not clear or something is really new or um, a, a question has come up, why don't you, you raise your hand? Okay, we'll also have a Q&A session at the end. But that will help me direct our discussion in a sense because there's so much. I teach a whole unit on this through in the unit. And we're just going to be here for a little bit over an hour today. So uh, there's a, uh, we can go in very many ways. The first thing I'd like to do, though, is to read to you something that the Holy Father said last week in Rome. And I happen to see that the Catholic Weekly actually has this as a headline in the paper this week as it talks about the Roman Missal. Um, the Holy Father met with a committee that was, that's called the Vox Clara Committee, V-O-X-C-L-A-R-A which was a committee that was assisting ISIL, which was the translation body from the Latin to the English of the Roman Missal. And as the Roman Missal was coming to its, um, shall we say, fruition this week and final approval, he met with them. Uh, Cardinal Pell is part of his pictures there with, with the Holy Father as, he, as, as part of the Vox Clara Commission. And the Holy Father gave a little address and within there, he's basically thanking the members of the committee because their work, their work, while not totally finished, the majority of it has been completed, and now a new phase is, is going to begin. And so he said in the midst of this little address, through these sacred texts, meaning the Missal, and the actions that accompany them, Christ will be made present and active in the midst of his people. And a little bit later on, many will find it hard to adjust to unfamiliar texts after nearly 40 years of continuous use of the previous translation. The change will need to be introduced with due sensitivity and the opportunity for catechesis that it presents will need to be firmly grasped. I pray that in this way, any risk of confusion or bewilderment will be averted, and the change will serve instead as a springboard for a renewal and a deepening of Eucharistic devotion all over the English-speaking world. Okay, so he sort of lays it out for the rest of us of what needs to happen. That phrase, due sensitivity, it's very pastoral, right? That this is one way of, um, of I don't want to say correcting, 
But one of the um, events or situations that occurred when the missile was first translated from Latin into English 40 years ago, all right, um, that the experience for many people was that they were just told what to say, all right, that the, the priests were said, okay, this is it in English, and everybody use these responses, do this, stand up, kneel down, and there wasn't a catechesis of what these words and what these gestures mean. In other words, in a rite, we recognize that everything we do, everything we do, just about everything we do, is symbolic. All right? It has a, another meaning, just as in any sacrament. When we pour water on a baby's head and the priest says the words, I baptize you, okay, we recognize that that symbolism of the washing actually has a deeper reality, not just, not just um, um, naming it, but actually causing it to occur. And so as persons entered into the Mass, being told what to do without appropriate catechesis, that this has been a lack over the ensuing generations, we can say. And so the Holy Father is saying, the opportunity for catechesis is here. Don't blow it. Okay? Can be firmly grasped. And so this is an opportunity that you're here tonight and that I have the opportunity to talk to you about this. Uh, because I want to introduce you to some of the treasures that are present in the general instruction and in the Roman Missal. And that word treasures isn't, isn't just mine, but that's been said by the Holy Father in other places as well. Um, and so we can consider tonight, if I could say this, a little bit like a book launch, <laughs> all right, um, that the church has been given this past week, and it's so opportune that it just happens that I uh, was, you know, Arlette had asked me to come this evening to speak to you. So just to give you a little background, the Roman Missal was first translated or in 1970, if you look at the oldest English missiles that are in use, 1970. And when the missile was presented or given to us, as in every sacramental celebration, in the front of it, there's a, there's a good portion of basically explaining how the Mass is to be celebrated. Right, you've probably all heard the phrase about you do the red and say the black. Right, the rubrics are in red in a missal. What you do, and the prayers that are said are in black. Well, even before we come to the prayers, there's the rules. How do we celebrate mass? And so that, with the missal, was presented in 1970. By 1975, there was a need to sort of fine-tune what that first translation had presented. And, and we had uh, another edition. It was called like the altar, the altera, Edizio altera. Um, altera. And then, 
Some of the prayers were seen, as time went on, not to be translated well from the Latin. And so some amendations had to be made. So in 1984, uh, there was another edition of the Missal presented. Not with major changes, but some of the prayers, all of a sudden, you know, you, when you really start listening to the prayers, theologically they didn't make any sense. And going back to the original Latin, there were some mistakes. So that was corrected. As time went on then, that was 1984. So, okay, so 70, 75, in brackets 84. So we're moving along. In that time, the universal church continues to live her faith life. And with the documents of Vatican II, with other various works of the Holy Fathers um, and the congregations of Rome, there were modifications that were asked of various bishops' conferences in their celebration of Mass. For example, in the United States, I believe it was 1980, actually it was a little bit earlier, the bishops asked if reception of Holy Communion under both species could be made more common than what was permitted up to that time. In, in the early documents, the Sacrosanto Concilium in the early documents, um, Holy Communion could be received under both species by a, mar- a couple at their wedding, by the faithful on Corpus Christi, and I believe also on Holy Thursday. And other than that, it really wasn't, it wasn't permitted to the ma- major part of the faithful. And so the bishops asked, you know, with proper catechesis, could we allow our people to receive unto both species? And I'll talk a little bit more about that, but Rome said yes. And then other countries also um, asked for that permission. And so we had um, Holy Communion to both species, not only at those special feasts, but also on Sundays in a more general way, for example, Um, and small community masses more frequently. Um, as, As Rome looked out over what was going on in various countries, they saw, they began to see, you know, it's time we incorporate some of those modifications for the whole universal church. In other words, the goodness that was seen in those modifications should be extended to more than those particular bishops' conferences. It's not just a permission given to them, but to everyone. Not to change not to change the, the ritual that's been handed on. You know that word traditio that we use during RCIA, for example? We use it in relation to the carrying on of the faith in general. And so not to change that, but how do we bring forth the understanding that is within the Mass? All right, so the Congregation for the uh, Worship and the Discipline of the Sacraments <coughs> began working on a revised general instruction. And in 2000, in 2000, we had the promulgation in Latin of the general instruction of the Roman Missal and the Roman Missal itself. I have a copy, this is in Latin. So if anyone is, likes to look at Latin, and this is the one that was released in 2000. 
And the bishops' conferences of the world were, they were um, given the task to have the general instruction translated into their language. And also, within the general instruction, there's a chapter that says the bishops' conferences of a country should make decisions about these particular elements. Okay? And uh, we can look at those a little bit. Yeah, there things that would be particular to a region, uh, a country, an ethnic group that uh, uh, would be approved not by necessarily a singular bishop, an individual bishop, but by a conference. And then there are other elements that a bishop themselves might um, um, make some choices on. So in 2007, 2007, Australia released the general instruction in English. Okay, now how many of you are aware of that? Okay, not many of you. Okay, if you want a copy of it, it's on the Bishop's Conference website. You go to the liturgy department and you keep click, click, click until you get to documents and there's a PDF file of the general instruction. Okay, or you can buy it. It's also in a booklet form. Sister, it was then that uh, two changes were presented to the... Uh... That's right. Soon after we had two changes of gestures. Was there a reason why just... Uh... Two changes were brought in two years ago. Why well, because there really isn't a lot of there's not a lot of change. There's really not a lot of change in the mass. I mean, when we go with with the introduction of the missal, um, there's not many. Those are the, the the ones that are most obvious. Okay, most of what we'll see that's going to make an impression on individuals are the texts of the mass, the prayers of the mass. Okay, but at the same time, what's key is not only to talk about the text of the Mass, but also some of, some of the power of the gestures that we have during Mass, and to give, uh, um, a new, to give the proper significance to those gestures, or the, or the, ways, or the way prayers are done. Okay? And so that's that, um, the actions. Now, let's see. One of them was to stand at the offertory. Um, what was the second one now? Oh, it was about before Holy Communion, which actually was not a change. Which actually was not a change. It was always in the general instruction. If I look at the, this is the current missile. If we looked up the general instruction in the front, we'd see that it says on the reception of Holy Communion, there should be a gesture of reverence made. Okay? In the old mass, the Trintine mass, the, reverence, the gesture of reverence is kneeling at the altar rail. Right? That was the gesture of reverence. So now we're not doing that, and people would just be walking up. So, so the fathers, when they wrote this, already back in 75 had that. But how many people knew that? Yeah, I, I can still remember our priest. Um, well, he, he taught us genuinely. Okay, see, uh, he read it. <laughs> okay, well, well, well we, we have... The, where priests would know that there should be a sign of reverence, and, uh, and the other side of it is persons of their own in, own interior recognize that there needed to be a reverence because they wanted to be at the altar and they couldn't be, so what would they do? So they would genuflect, for example. Okay? So, so the bishop's conference, basically that, that's what the Americans had done, you know, was the, the, a bow. Okay? Um, uh, not necessarily a, um, a profound bow, but a bow of the head. That okay. No, no, no. This was without us because the United States released the general instruction in English with their um, modifications in 2002. So it took a little bit longer for Australia. 
All right, that's why I feel confident about talking about this because I did it in the States already once. So, <laughs> Talk, uh, so, um, so what I want to do as we move now into looking at the Mass, I want you to look at the little handout I gave you. And what I've done is I've actually taken portions of three paragraphs from Sacra Sacramentum Caritatis, and that is the post-synodal exhortation that Pope Benedict released in 2007. 2007. Okay, this was after the Synod on the Eucharist in Rome, and you know, at the end of a bishop's synod, what the bishops do is that as a way of concluding the synod, they come up with a list of propositions that are then given to the Holy Father. And he incorporates them into a document that he writes. They're, they're, they're like suggestions. What do, now that we've learned, we've talked about the Eucharist from one end of the world to the other, these are the things that we see should be addressed. And then the Holy Father takes that into his own reflection and he presents it as with Sacramentum Caritatis, the Sacrament of Charity. Okay? And there was one section that was particularly striking to me and relevant to today's um, discussion. And that's a section that has a Latin title called Ars Celebrandi, which means the art of celebrating, this art of celebration. Now, the first thing you may think of is, well, that's what the priest should do. All right? How does he celebrate Mass? And it's true. We particularly talk about that in the way the priest will celebrate Mass. But we also have a role. We also have a role in this Ars Celebrandi. And I want to show you what the Holy Father said, again, to give us the spirit of what is, is expected at this time. So in 38, this is, uh, you know, as you know, the magisterial documents are numbered by paragraph. The Ars Celebrandi, the art of proper celebration, and the full, active, and fruitful participation of all the faithful. Now, now I know you come here every night for how many years? And I know you've done these Vatican II documents, I'm sure, up and down, left and right. And there's this phrase from Sacrosanctum Concilium that's similar to this. Do you recall it? Full, active, and... Anybody know the other word that goes with it? I'm sorry, I'm lecturing here. I shouldn't. Um, full, active, and conscious participation. That's the word that's usually said. The Holy Father has changed it. He's saying fruitful participation. What is fruitful participation? All right? It's another way of looking at conscious. It's not only being aware, not only being aware of what I'm doing, but actually that there's an effect. There's an effect because I'm doing this or I'm saying that. Okay? And, and if that's part of the Ars Celebrandi, that means it's something that is to be interior, not necessarily out. When we think about art, you may think of you know, the, the way a person walks or talks, and that's true, that's part of it. But, but by changing this word to fruitful, or emphasizing this, it, show, it's, it speaks to me of this proper celebration has something to do interiorly with an individual. The primary way to foster the participation of the people of God in the sacred rite 
is the proper celebration of the Reich itself. The Ars Celebrandi is the best way, the best way to ensure their actuosa participatio. All right, you're going to get Latin here tonight. All right, that actuosa participatio is the Latin phrase that has been translated for 40 years as active participation. And it's often been interpreted as everybody has to have a role in the Mass, okay, an active role. All right, now, I've been at school Masses, not necessarily in this country, where every single kid has an intention at the prayers of the faithful, or another class, they're all bringing up gifts at the altar. And because the teachers, when they see active participation, everybody's got to have a job to do in Mass. That's not what that phrase actually means in Latin. Actuosa doesn't mean active. It's closer to actual, actual participation. What is the real participation that I am able to manifest, that I'm having here? Okay? It's much deeper than just the exterior. It's the interior reality. So that in Sacrosanctum Concilium, it says... Those persons have, a, persons have a particular role in the Mass, and they should only do the role that's proper to them. So we know. You have one reader, two readers. But how many readers? For, you know, it's nice to divide up that there's someone different for every reading. It doesn't say you have six people praying the general intercessions. Okay? We have the body of the community who is in the pews, who may not be leading the assembly, they're also in active participatio actuosa by their union in prayer with what's going on. Do you all see that? Okay. The Ars Celebrande is the fruit of faithful adherence to the liturgical norms in all their richness. Okay. Now, people will say norms. That's like rules. How can they be rich? All right, but when you see what's in the general instruction, it's spiritual reading. It's beautiful. Okay, and this, and this is what allows what is occurring at the Mass to most clearly be manifested in, in um, if I can say, a transparent Ars Celebrandi. So, then it goes on. The bishop, he says, must be determined that the priests, deacons, and the lay Christian faithful grasp ever more deeply the genuine meaning of the rites and liturgical texts and thereby be led to an active and fruitful celebration of the Eucharist. And you see, that's in quotes, because that's right out of the general instruction. He lifted that right out of the general instruction to put that in here. So what is he saying? An ever more genuine meaning of the rites. All right, for example. Okay, for example. We start Mass, and what does everybody do? Oh, before that. Stand. Stand. Okay? Why do we stand? Why do you stand? Why do you think you stand? Hey, the priest comes in. Right, so? So? What? In the church. Okay, but what does it mean? He, he enters and so he stands. 
All right, lots of people say it's as respect for the priest. Okay, that's good. That's nice. Now, but that's not the full meaning. It's a nice meaning. But what's the rest of the meaning? When that procession begins on a typical Sunday Mass we're talking about, how, what, how, consult your experience. What is the procession composed of? What's the first thing? The crucifix. Not a cross, a crucifix. Processional cross, we call it, but it should be a crucifix. It, really, okay? All right, and then the two servers, or how many servers? All right, and then the priest. And, and so they usually start from the door and go forward, right? To the, where are they going? To where, the sanctuary. All right, they are all the sanctuary, okay? All right, well, they've got to get that way, sister, so they got to walk there. What else are they going to do, right? All right, but if you consult, again, think of the Mass. We have at least four processions in the Mass. Processions are symbolic. There's a reason why we have what does when we are processing in even out in the street on a Corpus Christi, we have that lovely one here even on this property, but particularly in the mass, as the priest, led by the cross, is moving towards the sanctuary, we see that procession as the as the movement toward the new Jerusalem. The sanctuary is considered the new Jerusalem, symbolically. And where do we hear about the new Jerusalem? In the book of Revelation, right? The Apocalypse. And what is happening in the Apocalypse? Especially as we get towards the end of the Apocalypse, or the book of Revelation. Is that we have the Lamb before the throne, right? Okay? It's the banquet of the Lamb. Now, we can't get into all kinds of sacramental theology tonight, but... As, but we know, we know that I am in this life to get, to get to that banquet of the Lamb in heaven, to get to the new Jerusalem. And as we are in procession, or as the priest and, and those few people that are with him are in procession, and led by Christ, the image of Christ on the cross, who has already been victorious and is the Lamb, and he is bringing the body of his people, the new people of God, to the new Jerusalem. Okay? Alright. We can't all be in the procession. There's not enough room. So as we stand, out of respect, then our hearts and minds are also attuned that, yes, Lord, I do want to get to the new Jerusalem. I'm here at the Eucharist to learn how I can get to the new Jerusalem bringing you my sorrows and joys of this past week to be united with those of your son. Okay? So, this is what we're talking about here with this phrase. That the faithful grasp ever more deeply the genuine meaning of the rites. Okay? So that's just, that's just one little symbol. We're not even 30 seconds into Mass yet. Alright? You see where you can take your heart and soul and mind. Okay, excuse me, I meant that was on 39 as well. Therefore, we led to an active and fruitful celebration of the Eucharist. Now, emphasizing the importance of the Ars Celebrande also leads to an appreciation, an appreciation of the value of liturgical norms. All right, what does that mean? Why do we say, why do we say that you do that something is permitted and something else isn't permitted. All right? I'll give you an example 
I use this in class this week. It's outside of mass, but it relates to this as well. The baptismal rite. In the ba- in, you know, think of the last time you were at an infant baptism. Okay? And one of the first things the priest does after he has a little dialogue with the parents is he says, um, he says he invites the parents and the godparents to sign the forehead of the baby. He does it, and then he invites the parents and the godparents to do it. Nobody else. The church could be full of people. Alright? Why, why is it only the parents and the godparents who sign that baby, and not the whole church? Alright? Uh, because the parents have the responsibility, the major responsibility, for bringing that child up in the faith, right? They are the ones, because the priest just says, what, did you ask, what do you ask of your child? What do you ask of your child? And they say, baptism. Okay, you said it. Now, act on it. You're going to mark the forest. Oh, it would be so nice to have everybody. We're all supposed to help these parents be good parents. Why can't we all sign the baby's forest? What would that do? It's a nice idea, but it would diminish, it would diminish the force of what those parents have to think about as they consciously mark the sign on that baby's forehead. Do you see that? All right? It's, it's a nice idea, but it diminishes something else. And so this, we begin to see, yes, this is why it is. Why is it that a lay person is considered an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion? All right? And not an ordinary minister. Right? There's something about that man in holy orders that it means that he should be the one to distribute Holy Communion. And it's only for extraordinary reasons that we have others, lay people, doing that. Okay? Do you see that? Okay? That, there's, that the reason behind the norms um, has to be, we have to, um, we have to be willing to look at things with open eyes. Why? Why is this? There must be something behind this I don't, I'm, I'm not getting, if, if, if one has a question. Okay? Um, the Ars Celebrande should foster a sense of the sacred and the use of outward signs which help to cultivate this sense, such as, for example, the harmony of the right. Okay, the harmony of the right. When you look at the structure of the mass, it's so ordered. All right? If we start introducing things, we throw order out of something that's been, the church has been developing with the Holy Spirit for 2,000 years. Okay? The liturgical vestments, the furnishings, and the sacred space. The Eucharistic celebration is enhanced when priests, and liturgical leaders are committed to making known the current liturgical texts and norms, making available the great riches found in the general instruction of the Roman Missal and the order of readings for Mass. That's the lectionary. All right? The riches that are in the lectionary. In other words, when we look at the lectionary, you know, there's a cycle. There's a cycle for Sundays and another cycle of readings for um, uh, during the week. And when you begin to see the connections that the church has made in the way the readings have been selected, we call that riches. Perhaps we take, okay, I love this sentence. This is the Holy Father at his best. 
Perhaps we take it for granted that our ecclesial communities already know and appreciate these resources. But that is not always the case. These texts contain riches. That's the third time he said that word. Which have preserved and expressed the faith and experience of the people of God over its 2,000 year history. Equally important for a, cor a correct Ars Celebrande is an attentiveness to the various kind of language that the liturgy empl employs. Now, look at what this means. Words and music, gestures and silence, movement, the liturgical colors of the vestments. He's calling that various kinds of language. By its very nature, the liturgy operates on different levels of communication, which enable it to engage the whole human person. That's that body-soul element I was speaking of earlier as well. The simplicity of its gestures and the sobriety of its orderly sequence of signs Okay, that word sobriety, it's over and over in the Roman Missal, okay? You know, we think about it meaning you're not drunk, all right? <laughs> sobriety is, is this, um, uh, like when Sacrosanctum Concilium talks about noble simplicity, okay? In other words, there's something, the Latin rite, one of the, um, the uh, characteristics of the Latin rite is that it is compact. In the Latin language, when you look at the prayers in Latin, they're very short because they were able to pack a lot into a few words. And so when we ha translate them, then they, sometimes they have to be a little bit longer. But you have to listen really carefully. And this is why the priest has to be very uh, good at enunciating those prayers, like the opening prayer, the prayer over the gifts, and the prayer after communion, because they are full of impact in many of their compact phrasing. Okay, and that's true also with the gestures. We're not, we're not necessarily flamboyant in the Latin rite. The sequence of signs, orderliness, communicate and inspire more than any contrived and inappropriate additions. Attentiveness and fidelity to the specific structure of the rite express both a recognition of the nature of Eucharist as a gift and on the part of the minister a docile openness to receiving this ineffable gift. Okay? Alright, so this those few paragraphs, I think it says a lot in terms of, you know, how, how Mass is celebrated, not only not only um, Gestures, but the way the words are spoken as well. Okay, so we have we have this to place into context as well. So what what does the general the the general instruction talk about that's different um, or that you need to be aware of? Need to be aware of. Well, some of the high points is that as you look at the general instruction, I'm just. Um, you can print this off the internet, I, I mentioned before, 75 pages. Um, but 
What we see at the very beginning, I want to read the first sentence to you. When the Lord was about to celebrate with his disciples the Passover meal, in which he instituted the sacrifice of his body and blood, he gave instructions that a large furnished upper room should be prepared. Okay? So, as any good theology does, it's based in scripture. So right at the beginning of this instruction, they're, quoted, they're, talking, about, they're talking about St. Luke. When the apostle said to Jesus, where should we celebrate the Passover? And so he says, go to this, you'll see this man, and go to his man and say, you want to have his room upstairs, etc., etc. Okay, and buy the groceries and prepare the meal. And so, and in that first sentence, it talks about the meal and the sacrifice, the reality, the reality of the Mass. Okay? Some of you maybe have been um, um, alert to, I don't, I don't think it's as common anymore now, but when, after Vatican II, a lot of the sacrifice vocabulary seemed to leave the discussion about the Mass. It was a meal. You know, it's a fellowship meal. And we stayed away from sacrifice because we don't want to talk about that kind of stuff. Okay? Whereas we see in the general instruction right away that's identified. We can't, we know that. We can't, we could never have the Eucharist without the sacrifice. Holy Thursday, Jesus prepared his apostles, but it wasn't fulfilled until the crucifixion. Okay? The general instruction, what it does is it gives us theology, and then places the norms within that theology. And that's why it's so wonderful. Because it, 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 it gives us those different levels of communication that Benedict talks about. Okay? Like there's um, uh, soon after, as you, as, as you move into the general instruction, it talks about the ministerial priesthood and what the place of the priest is within the Mass. We couldn't have the Eucharist without the priest, as he's there in Persona Christi. But then, right in the next paragraph, it does something that the other general instruction didn't do to the same extent. And that is, it talks about those of us in the common priesthood. This is number paragraph five. In addition, the nature of the ministerial priesthood also puts into its proper light another reality, which must indeed be highly regarded, namely the royal priesthood of the faithful, whose spiritual sacrifice is brought to completion through the ministry of the bishop and the priests in union with the sacrifice of Christ, the one and only mediator. And so there's, several, there's a few paragraphs in here that talk about the common priesthood. All right, now, do you all know you're part of the common priesthood? The common priesthood, that's the reality of our baptism, okay? That could be a whole other session another time, that when we talk, we talk about baptism, and that we are all to give spiritual sacrifice, St. Peter says in one of his letters, okay? May your life be a spiritual sacrifice. Not only our day-to-day, but we unite our prayer at Mass. Okay? A priest is one who gives sacrifice. And so the common priesthood is emphasized several times within the general instruction. One part I particularly like to get on my soapbox about is when it talks about the general intercessions. The general intercessions um, are introduced by the priest, and then there are five intercessions that are recommended 
right? You, you know, if you again consulting your experience, you know, we always we pray for the church, we pray for uh, world peace, leaders, those in special needs, such as the poor and the sick, and only at the last one do we start praying for ourselves. Okay, the local church. Okay, and what the general instruction says. This is the prayer of the common priesthood. All right, this is the prayer of the common priesthood. In other words, the proper leader for this prayer, the priest introduces it, but the one who leads the intercessions is not the priest. It's the deacon, first of all, and then, or, and if he's not, if he's not a deacon, one of the laity. And then at the end, the priest collects all those intentions and concludes with another prayer. Okay? All right? It's really the role of the laity to, do, to, to announce the general intercessions. What it does is it allows us to claim that we are indeed part of the common priesthood, which is to pray for others. And it also makes us aware that there's a bigger world out there. That's why they're called general intercessions. The intercessions, uh, on a special occasion, you might have a few if it's a first community, you know, if it's a local celebration, a wedding, etc. But for the most part, we want to recognize the needs of the world that we have a responsibility to pray for. Okay? And the bishops, the bishops have a special role to take care of the whole church. You know, besides their local diocese, this is why, like, even we have um, a priest down in South America somewhere for, like, 30 years. You know, Cardinal Pell talks about him sometimes. And because that's, that's, that's the response of a bishop in taking care of another church. When we sit, and then when we take collections up for natural disasters for other parts of the world or down in Victoria for the fires, that is our role, the role of the common priesthood to take care, not only, not only um, in a in a material way, but here in prayer, a spiritual way. Sister, yeah. you just mentioned uh, in the Christi. Can you translate that? Because Oh, okay, in the person of Christ. In other words, the priest, there are many, uh, we recognize that when the priest as the minister is there in in the person of Christ, in place of Christ. You know, Augustine, St. Augustine said, it's not the priest who baptizes. You think it is, so there he is. But it's Christ who baptizes through the priest. The priest is the instrument. So that when the priest says the words of consecration at Mass, all the words become first person. Okay? This is my body, this is my blood. Okay? He's speaking the words of Christ. So we, we see that the importance of the theology of the common priesthood is is more and more emphasized in the general instruction. Another, another area is, as I spoke at the very beginning, about receiving Holy Communion under both species. The general instruction has about three or four pages, that, which is for the, for the space is, is quite a big percentage of the, of the instruction, encouraging the local churches to be able to distribute Holy Communion unto both species. Okay, first it talks about why did we have to give it up? Why did we not receive unto both species for such a long time? And the origins go back, they go back to the Reformation. You know, Luther, one of his um, 
his things was that if you don't receive both from the chalice and the host, it's not really receiving Holy Communion. And the Church believed, and we still believe, the theology that either under the form of bread or in the cup, the body, the blood, the soul, and divinity of Christ is present, whether we receive just the host or from the chalice. Okay? And so to counter Luther, the Church said no, and we're going to receive this way. Okay? The general instruction says we're beyond that now. We don't have the same, I mean, we still have the, you know, the Protestants that we don't have full union yet, but we're not fighting anybody. And it is more proper that we receive unto both species. Why? Because it is a meal. And what do we do at every meal? We eat and drink at a regular meal. And in the celebration of the sacraments, something that's very important is that the symbols, the sacramentals that are used during the celebration as clearly as possible manifest the reality that's occurring during the celebration. So because it is a meal, we should be, it would be best if we did receive both the host and, and the precious blood as well. Okay? So, so, but, again, it's left to the bishops' conferences to say, is a people ready for that catechetically? And a bishop can say, you know, to the parish priests, if, if your people are ready, then you should do this. Sometimes the structure of a church doesn't really permit it. All right, there's a church in the States, and the way the pews were, people would be jostling, and you couldn't protect the precious blood in the chalice. So it wasn't a good idea at that point for that particular parish to institute that. They have to do something to the structure of the church to allow a movement that the precious blood would be, would be uh, reverently distributed. Okay? Another... Another... <coughs> Peace in the general instruction that wasn't ignored either in the second one, but it's brought to the fore, I believe, in this one is the use of music in liturgy. Okay, we have um, um, there's a couple of a couple of, of proverbs that are quoted. One is um, uh, um, that the lover always sings, and the other one that the way it was written in the first general instruction, I think it was this way, that one who sings prays twice. Okay? And it's corrected in this general instruction. It says, the one who sings well prays twice. So there's your the music director's club for quiet practice. Alright? And when we look at music, when we look at the way music is, is described in the general instruction, it's, it really is encouraged. Like it says, there should never be a Sunday Mass without music. Even that 7.30 a.m. Mass should have some kind of music. Because of, of, when we say the solemnity of Sunday, I don't mean solemnity in a, in a I want to say it in a festive way. We have, to, we have to, through music, we demonstrate that Sunday is a little Easter. And the way that mu when you look at not only the general instruction, but at other church documents about music, we can make a few conclusions. We can make, draw a few principles from. And that is, is um, 
that the order of mass, what's at every mass, is are the parts that should always be sung as much as possible. It's one principle. In other words, you know, something like the Kyrie or the Gloria, the Sanctus, the Agnus Dei, the Our Father. That's the order, you know, the ordinary of the mass should be sung. But then within that, within that, we also see a pattern that whatever is closest, whatever is closest to the heart, the core of the mass, should especially be sung. So, for example, you know, the Mass is divided up into the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist, besides an intro and a conclusion. And in the Liturgy of the Word, the high point of the Liturgy of the Word is the Gospel. And when the Gospel, when the gospel is introduced, we have the Gospel acclamation. And it says very clearly that that should be sung as much as possible, that gospel acclamation. And if it can't be sung, it can even be omitted. I mean, think about it. How blah is it when we just say, Alleluia, Alleluia. <laughs> what? You should sing it. That's, that's the point, exactly. That we can sing it. Okay? Yes, all right, that's the high point of, we can say, the heart, the heart of the liturgy of the word. That's one of those times, you know, the, the, the documents talk about the four presences of Christ. That Christ is present in the assembly that gathers. Christ is present in the person of the priest. Christ is present in the preaching of the gospel, in the reading of the gospel, and in the Eucharist, the real presence. Okay? So as as we say as we sing Alleluia Alleluia, when you listen to the words that we're singing, what you know what do we say? Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. We're talk we're we're not talking about him. We're talking to him at that point. Okay, okay. Now the heart, the heart of the to the Eucharist, consecration. All right. So all those elements around the Eucharistic prayer. We can almost, almost make concentric circles about around it. Shows the importance of their need to be sung. Like the memorial acclamation, the mystery of faith, the priest says, should be singing. And then we answer. And actually, I can, I can tell you something. We have a new answer. I have the new translation here. Um, and I want, we should talk about some of those words of comment too. But in the, in the, you know the Christ has died, Christ has risen? That was never in the Latin. That was that was a English edition that got committed. But now there's actually only um, there's only there's only one acclamation given. And I understand that the English world may ask for some additions, but since it's got approved, like, we'll see if there's some additions in that. This copy that I have only has the one. So the priest says the mystery of faith. He doesn't say let us proclaim the mystery of faith anymore. Okay, in the Latin it's mysterium fidei, and that just means the mystery of faith. And so the people acclaim. We proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. Alright, that's the mystery of our faith. That's the saving plan of God. We proclaim your death, O Lord, 
Oh, I take it back. There are two others. All right, sorry. Profess your resurrection until you come again. The second one. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, O Lord, until you come again. That's one we know already. Save us, Savior of the world, for by your cross and resurrection, you have set us free. Okay, so those are the two others. What? Concealment, what we will It is? It's similar, yeah, yeah. It's a little bit different, but yeah, you're right, it is. Okay, so those are those are the three that would be there now. Okay, all right. So that should be always sung. You know, another part that should always be sung. Now I'm saying should. Now we all know it all depends on parishes and music abilities and all that. But this is what we should be striving for. We should be striving for choir practices and <laughs> striving for really wanting to 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 live the spirit that's given to us in this would be the, the great amen after the doxology, right? When the, when the priest holds up the body and blood of Christ, through him, with him, in him. It's the climax of the Eucharistic prayer. We, I tell you, when we mumble amen, the angels in heaven must cry. Um, that should be, like, shouted, you know, sung out. All right, we've been made present. We've been made present to the Lord's self-offering. You know, that word amen... You know, I I say I'll ask. You know, what does it mean? Everybody says, "So be it." I believe it. Well, that's again sort of a not enough. <laughs> the meaning of "amen" in Hebrew means "yes, I agree, I believe with my whole being." All right, it's hardly worth a mumbled "amen." All right, and so we sing it out. We should sing it out. Okay, so you have to go back to your parishes. I know this is being taped, I'll get in trouble now, but you have to encourage that, that these parts of the Mass, because we want, we want to say who we are, that we do believe in this. This is what drives my life. Alright? So as we, as we come out from, alright, I'm going a little bit backwards here now. So on the other end of the Eucharist, at the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer, um, we have the, um, the preface dialogue. All right. Now, um, the preface dialogue changed just a little bit. There was a big discussion about this because I know this was going on almost six years ago. The way they were going to translate this, so it's it, most of it didn't get changed. But there was some really the suggestions were very unusual. All right. The Lord be with you. And also with you. And also with you is what we've been saying. And what in all we're going to go back to the phrase and with your spirit and with your spirit. Okay, that's all through the mass. And you know, people say, "Oh, what does that mean?" What we have to remember is that what we speak in mass should be religious language. I know Robert was telling me he was a little perturbed by the way some of the words sounded. Can I say that? All right. But what we look at is that why is it a little bit different than what we speak normally? Is that it's religious language. And with your spirit is a phrase that's only said to an ordained minister. We're talking about the spirit of God that has been given to that person in orders. That's what I'm addressing. What? Instead of also with you. It's all right, the Lord be with you. All right, but we're addressing the spirit that's been given that man. Okay? 
that if you go through the Mass, we only say that, because the, the thing was, at one point we were saying, and also with you, with the sign of peace. All right, when the peace of the Lord be with you, and also with you, uh, and also with you. Okay, now what's interesting is that in the general instruction, it doesn't it even it doesn't say what to say. It just says give a gesture, and in Australia, typically it's a handshake. Okay, but in different places, it might be something else. It might be a vow. Okay. What? In, in Sri Lanka, in, when we came to Australia, yeah. Yeah, it's just with your hands together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a sign, and, and that's a wonderful symbol. The monastics do that still, and that's a sign of, of respect to the dignity of the other person. I mean, it's a one, I mean, we could go on a sign of peace, I could spend an hour talking about. But um, just to say that, um, that, and also with you or with your spirit, is taken out. It's not in the general instruction. And it's not in the missal either. It leaves it up to it leaves it up to whatever the local um, um, uh, custom is about how you would express the peace of the Lord. Okay. You don't do it at Saint Dominic's. What? At Saint Dominic's is There's no. There, no. Every mass has to have a sign of peace. Every mass does have a sign of peace because the priest will always say, "The Lord be with you." The peace of the Lord be always with you, and the whole congregation says. Are also with you right now, right? Okay, that's the sign of peace. Then there's an option, and it's still an option. You didn't do the gesture. Yeah. Okay. It's up to the parish priest to decide if that symbol, if if that gesture should be shared by everybody. All right. And so, how does he decide to do it or not? If it turns into chaos and it's 12 minutes long or long, right? Then we, and this is why, this is, you know, the Holy Father's talked about this. He wants, there was some discussion about moving it to where it was centuries ago, back in the liturgy of the Word. Okay? The theology right now where it is is magnificent if it was just done the way it says, which is in a sober manner to those nearest to you. Alright? Now this is a, this is a great concept. Let me say this because I know we're getting close to this question time. Because what does that mean? That we give it to those closest to us and in a sober manner. All right, once again. In other words, it's not silly. It's not silly. Because when we think about what the peace of Christ is, peace of Christ comes from when St. Paul says, Christ is our peace. He's, he's given, he is the one who brought peace between the Father and humanity once again. And that's what we're talking about in the sign of peace. It's awesome. It's 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 very profound. It's not just I'm good friends with you and make sure I say hello to you. And then how many times we've had the experience of being hurt if somebody doesn't look at us and give us the sign of peace? We've heard those stories. <laughs> what does it mean when I turn and give it to? It I'm giving Bedelia the sign of peace. And so when I say that to her, and she says it to me, that means I'm also giving it to the whole church through my giving it to her. How can I say that? Because we're each sacramental. All right? We know that sacramental means that something means more than what it appears. Okay? So it looks like I'm talking to... One person. But by my 
saying this to her, in this reality, in this right, I'm actually desirous of sharing that peace with every single other person. And it doesn't matter if I know you or not. But I want you to experience the peace of Christ. That's what I'm asking for you. Okay? And so by my saying it to one or two people, I'm actually saying it to everyone. And you can see how then that can that gesture can be very respectful and meaningful. Okay? And what and and, and honestly the sign of peace was so important in the early church that if you weren't baptized or you couldn't go to communion for one reason or another, you didn't receive the sign of peace. Okay, it started from the priest. The priest had the host on the corporal. It was off the paten and on the corporal, and he kissed the host. And then he gave the sign, the kiss of peace to the deacon, who gave it to the subdeacon, who gave it to the server, who then brought it out to the rest of the faithful. It's very significant. Okay, and then because of uh, developments in history, some of this has, we've lost some of it. But we have to know the theology behind it. And like I said, we could spend, there's, there's more to say about that. But um, for the purpose of today, I guess we better stop that at that point. But do you see what I'm talking about in terms of this? We were in music at this point. That um, at the preface dialogue, at the end of the preface, is when we sing the Sanctus. So the Sanctus, it says, we sing with the angels and saints. So why would we start reciting it? Okay? And the, because it's right, it, 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 it's quoting scripture when it says that. It's in Ezekiel and Revelation, where all the angels in heaven are singing, holy, holy, holy. Okay? So we have the Sanctus. And then, okay, and then we've gone through the rest of the Eucharistic prayer. And that's why it's even, you know, if you have a priest who, who likes to do it, especially on big feast days, to encourage him to chant the Eucharistic prayer. It's a wonderful thing to do. Without music. There's no music allowed. Because our mind is supposed to be intent on the words of the priest. It's very specific. It says that. It's only, it's only if he's chanting it. Okay? Um, and the new missile, <clears throat> one of the things that took so long for the missile to get uh, published is because of some of the new words that are used, some of the way the translations are, then the music that was in the Missal had to be redone. Like, this is the Latin one. And, um, you know, you, you're free to come up here and look at it later. Um, all these chants, you know, uh, some of them had to be reworked because of the addition of words or the subtraction of words. Okay? Um, okay, so the order of Mass is sung. Excuse me. And then, interestingly enough, um, well, not... At the beginning of Mass, we have the opening hymn. And it tells, it says in the general instruction what the content of the opening hymn should be. Alright? What, and it really should be as scriptural as possible. Uh, and then there might be one at the offertory. And then at communion, again, we have a procession. So as we're moving up to communion, we are moving forward again to the sanctuary the New Jerusalem, and so with one voice we are often singing. To, to, singing is a, a symbol of unity. 
Okay, so that's why it's encouraged that there be a song during this, or a hymn during the reception of communion. And then there's a time for thanksgiving, as you know, after communion. And then it's also encouraged to have a hymn at that point, after there's some quiet time, so that we praise and thank God as a body for what we've received at Mass. And then, this is what's interesting, there is no communion hymn, or there's no closing hymn mentioned. Now, we typically have a closing hymn because the priest is walking out, so we cover the music, we cover, and, and the music is typically, we often have a theme of going out into the world. But the general instruction doesn't require that at all. They don't foresee that, okay, which doesn't prohibit it, but it's just interesting how that's not there. But we see the order of mass, and because of time I can't go to the other parts, how um, it's those core elements of the Mass that are really encouraged that we're singing, but at the same time, that should be helping us to develop that interior sense of that actual participation, that um, we're joining our hearts and our minds to the words. Okay? Just if I just ask you a question. Yeah. Um, this is what Neil was actually pointing out. The of... Um says in that last paragraph, um, I'm quoting on that, but yeah, yeah. it says, um, words and music gestures in silence. Yeah. Uh, movement. So the silence then is not necessarily, while there is a period of silence after communion, as you said, between hymns, yeah. there were two hymns, let's say. So other parts of the Mass where there is silence, and because I, I always thought that was probably the primary place where you would be having silence and time to... Yeah, there's a whole section on silence in the general instruction because it talks about the necessity of silence, the need for silence, I should say. A need for silence before Mass so that persons can recollect themselves. Like if you're having quiet practice, that there's a little bit of quiet before Mass begins, so we recollect ourselves. And that there be a little, some silence between the readings as well. Okay? We get very nervous when there's silence. Okay, people get nervous when it's too quiet. And we have to learn that the Lord works especially, you know, when we allow ourselves to be quiet. So it's between the readings. At the offertory, at the offertory, the prayers that the priest says, um, and that we answer, blessed be God forever, actually he doesn't have to say those out loud. What? Yeah, he doesn't have to say those out loud. And so... Um, it can either, there can either be music there or it says just let it be silent. It says that. And we watch what the priest is, is doing at that point. Again, it lets us, it allows us to unite our, our hearts and our minds to the meaning of the presentation of the gifts at that point. Because I think at the moment, um, I, for me, my, my cue is usually when the priest washes hands. Washes his hands, that's when he stopped playing. Because then he's going to start. So, I mean, these are the cues that you look for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it. If you, if you were having, yeah, you'd stop then. But there's nothing wrong to have silence there too, periodically. Yeah, yeah. So you don't have to actually have playing right after that. No, right. no. If it was a shorter, more. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So anyway, those are those are just those. That's just the tip of the iceberg, actually. I'd say. Um, yeah, and. You know, what you'll see, what you'll see in the texts that are different, just to, just to summarize, is, uh, for example, the creed, you know, the, the Nicene Creed, we, 
in English, it's always been translated as we believe, you know, we believe. And actually, in Latin, the word is credo, which means I believe. Just about every other language has done that, that I know anyway. And so we've gone back to we believe. And there's some words that, um, there's one word in particular that caused an awful lot of stress. And I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, we usually say one in being with the Father. We're going to go back to this word, consubstantial with the Father. It's a big word. Consubstantial. Okay? Which, the best, simple way of saying it, that was, was one in being with the Father. But it doesn't give the whole sense. So priests will have to give many homilies on what consubstantial means. Alright? Consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven. And then most of it is, is pretty much the same after that. The other big change, and some of you may re- remember this from the other confidier. You know the confidier in the... In the what? Oh, right, that's Hooray. it. I confess to Almighty God. This is the penitential right at the beginning of Mass. I confess to Almighty God... And to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in my thoughts and in my words, in what I have done and in what I have failed to do, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. It says it, striking their breasts, they said. It doesn't say three times. Therefore I ask Blessed Mary, Ever Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God. Okay? Alright? So that's going back to go again. Alright? Keeping the, the going back to the what is in the Latin. Okay? Those again, let me I'll take any any thoughts or comments. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Sister Moira de Bono. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.